Thank you, Kelsey. Let me go ahead and pray for us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we have to come together to study your word, to gather as your church. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that we would leave here with just a better understanding, a better appreciation of who you are, Lord, what you did on the cross, Lord, and where we live our lives as if we are hungering and thirsting for you. In your name, amen. So as some of you know, I grew up in Lakeland. Let the Polk County jokes start. Um, And growing up, my family went to a pretty conservative Baptist church. I realize conservative is a relative term, but um, let's just say they pushed the boundaries of legalism. At times, there wasn't a whole lot of do's, and there was a whole lot of don'ts. Okay, that's kind of the way that we were. And even though I knew who Jesus was, and I knew all the right things to say, I think if you asked me, I thought being a Christian really revolved around that set of rules. It was more the things I was doing or the things I wasn't doing. All right, Christians don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't dance, we don't dress a certain way, or we do dress a certain way, which is why I dressed up today. Um, just, just kidding. I didn't have anything, I had nothing clean. Um, so, you know, we don't go to the movies, and the list of the do's and the don'ts go on and on. And when you're 10, those rules are pretty easy to follow, right? You're, you know, I'm in this little bubble, my parents don't let me do much anyway, and so I, you know, it's pretty easy to be a Christian. It's a piece of cake. And then I hit middle school, high school, get a little more freedom, and my heart began to wander. It was like I was craving something different, you know, something more. And, you know, I couldn't explain it, and it wasn't until years later when I would ultimately realize that being a Christian wasn't rules, it wasn't regulations. It was a daily relationship with the Creator who loves you and loves me and invites us to walk daily with Him. All right, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, he says, The state of our soul is thirsty. The state of our soul is thirsty. And ultimately, we thirst for unconditional love. He says we look for it first in our parents, and obviously no parent can love unconditionally. And so when we don't get it from them, we embark on this journey. And this journey, if you boil it down, is to be known and loved. Okay? That's what he says. And obviously this can play out in a lot of different ways. It can play out, some of us pour our lives into work, we pour our lives into relationships, some pursue riches, some fame. But in the end, we are thirsting for purpose. All right? We want to be important. We want to know that we matter to someone. We want to know that we're loved, that we're important to someone. And unfortunately, a lot of times we end up looking for this love or this importance in all the wrong places. We look in places that in the end, if we're honest with ourselves, they don't quite satisfy. And on the other end of the spectrum, the crazy thing is the whole time we're pursuing those things that we pursue and we're doing those things we do, Jesus is standing there and he's beckoning us to follow him. You get various invitations throughout your life. You'll hear the gospel preached throughout your life. And it's, it's the Lord pursuing you. He's telling you, I'm the one who satisfies. He says, I'm the one. If you drink of my food or you drink of my water and eat of my food, I'm the one who gives you peace for your soul. All right, and if you think about what we've done in the book of John so far, we're walking through the book of John every week. You know, John 3, you had Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this successful, rich, probably elite leader of the Sanhedrin, and he came to Jesus by night. 
So obviously something in his life was missing or he wouldn't be coming to Jesus. So he comes to Jesus by night and he says, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, he uses this example from the Old Testament where these people were sick and they had Moses lifted up this serpent in the wilderness. And he says, look to that. If you look at that pole, you'll be saved. And that's, that was the Old Testament. You'll be healed. And now Jesus looks at Nicodemus and said, if you look to me, you'll have eternal life. Look unto me. And then in chapter 4, we met what? A Samaritan woman at the well. Right? And she, was, she had five husbands, and she was currently living with man number six. She was clearly looking for something. Okay? And Jesus looks at her and says, If you drink from my well, the well that I provide, the water that I provide, I will give you true satisfaction. This thirst, this thing you're, you're looking for, you're searching for, I will plug that need. All right? Then we met a man in John 5 at the pool at Bethesda. He'd been sick or couldn't walk lame for 38 years. And Jesus looks at him and says, take up your mat and walk. He did. He had faith. He looked at Jesus, picked up his mat, walked, and he was healed. And then in the next chapter, John chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Right, Probably 20,000 total. It was 5,000 men. And they all come and they get their bread and they come back the next day and they want more bread. They love the bread. So they came back for bread and Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never be hungry again. If you drink from me, you will never be hungry again. And basically he's looking at you know, all over, all these stories, you read through Matthew, you read through Mark, you read through Luke and the rest of John, you're going to see story after story after story after story where Jesus looks at creation and says, all these things you're pursuing, all these things you're chasing after, they're never going to fulfill you. Your soul is going to continue to be thirsty until you put your faith in me. I am filling. I am the one that fills that void. I am the one that fills that longing that you have. And here in John 7, as we read today in the beginning of John chapter 8, we're going to see two stories. And Jesus gives this similar invitation, this similar proclamation of, look to me. All right, so John seven let let's jump in. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here's the scene. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, your Bible may say the Feast of Booths. And as Jake mentioned last week, this was one of the three main Jewish feasts. There were seven feasts in all. For three of them, the Jews would make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem and they would celebrate together as like the Jewish nation. And this was one of those feasts. Um, This was a fun one. This was a festive time. Families were together. Meals were eaten together. Kids were running around. I mean, the whole thing lasted about a week. And it it was truly a celebration. And the reason for this feast... And this is important to the story of what we're going to learn about what Jesus says. But the reason for this feast, it was to celebrate God's provision for them for the 40 years they were wandering in the wilderness. You remember from Exodus, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during those 40 years, they lived in tents or booths. That's where they get the Feast of Booths. They lived in booths and they would wander and they would pick up their tent the next day and go put it down. And so basically what they're doing here is they're, they're celebrating God's provision when they were in the wilderness. He gave them manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. He gave them water, water out of a rock in one example, but he gave them water. And so that's what they're doing here. They're celebrating 
this history, kind of a bad history, if you will, where they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And there's this scene at the end of Deuteronomy, if you don't have to turn there, but if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, maybe write it down and look at it this week. But there's this scene at the end of Deuteronomy where the 40 years is done. Okay, if you remember, the reason they had to wander is because they disobeyed, and so a whole generation kind of died off, and we had a new generation come up, and that was the generation that was going to go into the promised land. So at the very end of Deuteronomy, you have Moses who at one point was also disobedient, so he wasn't going to enter the promised land. And so he's standing there at the very last chapter, and he's standing there and he's looking over the promised land. And this is the promised land that had been promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob hundreds of years before. So this was a big deal. They finally were on the edge of the promised land. And he's standing there and he's looking at Jericho, which would be the first city that they conquered. If you remember, that's the one they walked around seven times and the walls fell down. That was the very first city they would conquer. And you can only imagine what's going through Moses' mind. This is the culmination of 40 years of wandering. He's probably thinking of the burning bush when God first told him to go, go to Egypt, tell, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Then the 10 plagues, then they're in the wilderness and the Red Sea parts, and then they're out there and they disobey and they're wandering for 40 years. And now they're right about to go over into the promised land. So that's what this feast celebrates. It's to commemorate those 40 years where God preserved them when they were in the wilderness. And so the people would all flock to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they would build these booths, right? This is probably a little more modern version. I don't know if they had access to this kind of lumber back then, but you get the picture. They were, as far as you could see, you would see these little booths that they would live in for the entire week. They wouldn't live in their houses. They would live in these tabernacles or these booths, okay? And so if you looked over like the hills around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, it would, last week we said it would like, be like an Alabama-Auburn tailgate, something like that. It's probably an easy way to visualize it because as far as you could see, they didn't have Winnebago's and campers, but as far as you could see, there would be tents and people huddled around and people hanging out, people, people congregating, and that's what they would be doing for the whole week. Um, and they would build them out of these branches. That's kind of what they, this is obviously a modern picture, but they would build them out of these branches, which is very similar to what they would have used a thousand years earlier when they were in the wilderness. And so that's, that's kind of the point. Now, as 21st century Americans, when we read the fact that Jesus stood up and said, you know, I am, I'm going to provide this water or come to me if you thirst, while we get it, we don't really get it. Like the context of this feast is a big, what Jesus said is a big deal. And here's why. Water pretty much was a, the biggest part of the entire celebration. Okay, water was a big deal because in the desert when they were wandering, water was a big deal. So every day, tens of thousands of people would come with their palm branches and they would come up to the temple and they would put them over the altar. Okay, every day they'd kind of add these branches to the altar. And then the high priest would lead this processional of people. He had a golden pitcher and when he would lead this procession of other priests and anybody who wanted to come and they would walk down out of the temple, they would walk down to the pool of Siloam, which I think we have a picture of, kind of down here, the temple would be up there. And so they would walk down kind of that track right there, down to the pool, and he would take this water, this golden pitcher, and he would dip it into the water and bring it back every day of the Feast of Tabernacles. They would walk back as this big, you know, fanfare and they would come all the way back to the temple. All right, and as soon as he dipped down into the water, the people would say, um, they would recite Isaiah 12.3, which I don't have up there, but it says, With joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. 
And that's what they would recite over and over and over as this water's coming back. And he would get to the altar and he would pour the water out on the altar. And it was remembrance of Exodus 17 where Moses hit the rock and the water came out of the rock. And that's, that was kind of the picture. The Levitical choir would be there. They'd be singing the Halal, which is Psalm 113 to 118. And so, I mean, it was a joyous, festive time. And they would offer prayers, not only of thanksgiving for the past... But they would offer prayers for rain right now. It was a very arid, deserty area. So they'd be praying for God's continued provision of water. And they would also be praying for water in the future. And they would also be praying that he would pour out his spirit on his people. Because the Holy Spirit in scripture is often associated with water. And so it's like this picture. And that, that was their prayers. Their prayers that he would pour out his spirit as he said he would. And every day this would happen. Same thing. They go down the map, get the water, come back up. A lot of fanfare, a lot of circumstances, you know, just good time. And it was all building to the very last day. And the last day, the same thing would happen. Get the picture, walk back up. But this time when they got to the altar, they would circle the altar seven times. You know, and you can, if you, if you know the Old Testament history of Jericho, you can kind of picture why they were doing that. They were walking around the altar seven times, and it was a very, it was picture of when they walked around the walls of Jericho. It was kind of this last, this last thing that happened before they went into the promised land. Okay, you with me? Am I with me so far? All right, so if you stop and you picture the scene, Tens of thousands of people celebrating. Tens of thousands of people walking around this altar. There's this big deal. They're getting ready for this crescendo. They're getting ready for this, you know, the the priest to come up and to pour this pitcher of water for the last day onto this altar. And he would pour it out in celebration of God providing water for the people. All right, and I don't know when Jesus said the words that he said, but I can picture when he would have said it. Like if I had to just guess when he said it, comes up, the water's about to be poured. You can hear a pin drop. I, I guarantee you could hear a pin drop. And Jesus is watching this whole thing unfold. And from somewhere, somewhere outside of where everybody was, like just you guys keep looking up there, pretend there's a priest up there. From somewhere in the audience like this, some, all of a sudden you hear somebody yell out at the quietest moment possible, you hear somebody yell out those words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it says he cries out. Peace and quiet. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And you can imagine what happened with tens of thousands of people. I mean, there was a, I'm sure there was a guest. Someone not only interrupted what was about to happen, but this huge proclamation, if you come to me, like what's the, what's the priest doing? What's the high priest doing with this? Now you're telling people to come to you? And there was probably this gasp over the crowd. But in one statement, Jesus lays out the gospel. In one statement, he lays out his invitation for humanity. This is what he says. If you're thirsty, come to me. And drink. That's what he says. One commentator broke it down like this. He said, thirst is the knowledge of the problem. It's the knowledge of the condition. When you're thirsty, you know you're thirsty. And you want something to quench your thirst. So he says it's, it's an understanding of the implications. It's a realization that you're thirsty for something that you're not 
it's not satisfying. It's almost like, if, you know, you hear stories of boaters who are lost at sea and they want so badly to drink the water and it might satisfy for a split second, but when the salt kicks in, it makes them more thirsty. And that, that's the picture here. If you're thirsty for something, that will permanently satisfy you. And he says, come to me. It's like a beckoning. The next statement, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. It's this beckoning. It's this invitation. Because you can know you're thirsty, and you can know where to get the water. But if you don't go to Jesus, you're not going to get it. And that's, that's, that's why he says, come to me. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John MacArthur says, it's a thirsty soul, a longing for deliverance, a longing for hope, for peace, for forgiveness, for salvation, and a liberation from the power of sin. And then the final thing he says is drink. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And drinking means to receive him, commit your life to him, make him your own, embrace him, and accept him as your savior. And when you drink at the wells, here's the cool thing, when you drink at the wells of Jesus, verse 38 says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now think about that. If you nourish your soul at the feet of Jesus, if you pursue him, if you spend time with him, if you have an actual relationship with him, not only will your soul be quenched, but out of you will come rivers of living water. And here's what Jesus is saying. That water flow that goes into you, it doesn't stay in you. You're not the Dead Sea. You're not Salt Lake. You know, these rivers come in and then they just stop. They're stagnant. And so they become salty, essentially. They come nasty. And so that's what this is. That's not what you are. Verse 39 says, it says, Now this he said about his spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the water he's talking of, he's like, look, if you come to me and you're thirsty, I will give you my spirit. I will give you my Holy Spirit. And then what happens when you get the Holy Spirit? Put your faith in Christ, you get the Holy Spirit. It says water will flow out of you. My essence, essentially, will flow out of you. My fruit will flow out of you. The fruit of the spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. That's what flows out of you when the Holy Spirit is pouring into you. Does everybody see that? Does that make sense? That's essentially what he's saying. Now, for these people in John 7, it's a prophecy. Because it hasn't happened yet. The Spirit would come when Christ ascended into heaven and he would send his Spirit. Okay, so it hasn't happened yet. So for them, it's like this he said about the Spirit, which was to come. So if you fast forward six months, Jesus is hanging on a cross. He'd be pulled off that cross, put in the ground. He would raise again three days later. And then about 40 days later, he would ascend into heaven. Okay, anybody remember what, after he ascended into, hap, into heaven, what happened? What, who did he send? His spirit. No coincidence, he sent his spirit on another Jewish feast. Pentecost. If you, if you don't know, it's such a fascinating study to study the Jewish feasts. You know, a couple weeks ago we learned about unleavened bread. Then there's Passover, there's Pentecost, there's Feast of Tabernacles. There's all these feasts which are really pictures of who Christ is and who the Messiah is and they point to what's coming. All right? And at Pentecost you see this scripture fulfilled. Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and he preaches and thousands of people are saved. Holy Spirit comes into his life and boom. It's like Niagara Falls. Just 
The Spirit is flowing back out rivers of living water, as Jesus would say. And in Acts, you see it again and again. They preach again a few days later, boom, 4,000 people are saved. It's like, wow, this is, I can see those rivers coming back out. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. So if you look at that verse, this really is the prophet. It's a capital P. So what they're saying is, this is the prophet that we've been waiting for. This is the Christ. So the tens of thousands of people heard what Jesus said. And it's the same way it always is. When the gospel is preached, kind of think of Luke 8, maybe the sower. When the gospel is preached, people hear it differently. Some people believe, some people don't. And that's what you're seeing here. It says some people believed. Others said, this is the Christ. And then it said, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So all the prophecy in the Old Testament pointed to the fact that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. You can read about it in Micah. You can read about it in a lot of different places. Right? And since Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee... A lot of the Jewish leaders just assumed he was from Galilee. So this is really just a wisecrack. This is like kind of making fun of him. Everybody knows it's not going to come from Galilee. This is, you know, think of maybe a Polk County joke as Jake would make. You know, can really anything good come from Polk County? Um, I would say like Land Lakes, but I'd probably offend more of you than Polk County. I'm probably the only one from Polk County. So, um, but the Jewish, and here's, here's the sad part about the whole situation. The Jewish leaders could have easily gone to the temple records. And they could have seen where Jesus was from. The Jews kept meticulous records. They could have easily gone and said, oh, he's, he's really from Bethlehem. But they didn't care. They didn't want to believe in who Jesus was. They had their own agenda. They had their own status to maintain, their own wealth to pursue. They didn't, they didn't really care. They also could have found out where his lineage was from. They could have found out he was in the line of David. And the New Testament actually starts with that. Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to open your Bibles, but if you read Matthew chapter 1, it's his father's genealogy. And it takes Jesus all the way back to David. And if you go to Luke chapter 3, it's his mother's genealogy. And it takes her all the way back to David. So he, the scriptures are showing you, and the temple records would have showed them, but they didn't care. They, they didn't really want to believe. So they start making fun of the temple guard in verse 45. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officer said, No one has ever spoke like this man. So back in verse 32 of this same chapter, the, the Pharisees basically sent the temple guard out to bring Jesus in. They said, you know, bring him back in here. We've got to deal with him. And they come back and they don't have him. And the chief priest says, why didn't you bring him? And the officer said, no one has ever spoken the way this man speaks. And here, here's what's happening. Their thirst is being awakened. The gospel was sent out. The word of God was preached. Jesus had spoken and their thirst had been awakened. They were like, man, this is, this is what I've been wanting. This is what I've been waiting for. This is the fulfillment that I've been dreaming of. Like, I'm, I'm, again, I'm looking in all these different places, and it says, no one has ever spoken the way this man speaks. And so in the middle of this confusion, the Pharisees do what opponents of Jesus so often do. They begin to ridicule they try to deceive him. They blame. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Make them doubt Jesus because they don't have as much schooling as you do. Right? We see that today. 
a lot of times kind of, and I'm not blaming anybody, but the intellectual crowd a lot of times at certain universities, we're, we're more schooled than everybody else. We know Jesus isn't real. It's the same thing the Pharisees are doing. Pharisees are saying, look, they don't, they don't know the law like we do. They don't, they don't know as much. But this crowd they do not, that does not know the law is accursed. So in verse 50, as the chapter wraps up, it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, this was in John 3, he was, he was one of them and said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the passage closes with our old friend Nicodemus from John 3. And most likely a year and a half, two years had passed since John 3 when Nicodemus had gone to Jesus. So here's the thing. We don't know what's going on in Nicodemus's mind right now. We don't know if he secretly believed in Jesus, professed that that is the Messiah. We don't know any of that. But here's what, it, uh, here's what I think is true. He's clearly still searching for the truth. Because this is what he says. He goes, we have no idea. Or he says, we can't, we can't arrest this guy. Are you from, can you go back to 51? He says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's like, look, you can't arrest and execute a man without a trial. So he's, he's sticking up from Jesus, even if it's from afar, and they mock him again. He says, you're not from Galilee, are you? You're not backwards. You're not from the backwoods, are you? Go, go and search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. They, they, they know the answer to that. They just, it's, it's mockery. And that's how the chapter wraps up. Jesus gives this grand invitation at the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been so relevant for anyone who is listening, especially to dry, deserty country. He gives this grand invitation. Follow me. Come to me if you're thirsty. All right? And then... We see, you know, we see what happens. Some people believe. Some people mock. Some people probably are still struggling. It said there was division. At one point it says there was division among the people. You see a lot of different responses. Okay? And that happens every time the word of God is spoken. Time in and time out. All right? So let's go on to chapter 8. Um, and here, I want to tell you a few things about chapter 8 before we jump in. These are important. If you notice in your Bible, it's got brackets around it. Everybody see that? You can see it here on the screen. There's brackets around it. Um, scholars say basically that this particular passage, John 7:53 through John 8:11, was not in some of the original manuscripts. Okay? The original manuscripts don't include this particular passage of scripture. There are thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Okay, over and over the scribes, word for word for word, at least those who are believers, were copy the scriptures to the T. I mean, perfectly. All right, and the, the manuscripts we have found over the years, I mean, they're identical. But some of the earlier manuscripts don't include this one particular passage of scripture. And we don't, we don't know why. All right, it could have been that they just omitted it. Some of them could have just, some of the manuscripts, we find it written off in the margin. And so, you know, what do we do with that? Do we preach it? Do we not preach it? What do we do? So here's, here's where we land. This may or may not be in the original texts. There's, there's a chance this is not part of the original scripture. Or there's a chance it was in original scripture and somebody forgot to transcribe it and eventually just wrote it in the column. And then the next guy who did it wrote it in the column. The next guy who did it wrote it in the column. And that's kind of where we, have, where we are today. Could be this story that's just kind of floating around out there that really happened... And then somebody, again, wrote it in the margins. So, if I were you, and I was a skeptic, I would be saying, well, how many other times does this happen in Scripture? 
where they just add something in the margin. Right? That's, if I was a skeptic, I'd be asking that question. Well, the answer is two. Two times in all of Scripture was there a little addition that wasn't included in the original manuscripts. This is one of them. And there's another one at the end of Mark 16. And this isn't some recent discovery. It's not like, oh, in 1949, somebody just found a manuscript and decided that the Bible had this extra piece in it. This has been bracketed for a thousand years. Literally for a thousand years, every manuscript was bracketed. So the way we look at it as a church, as pastors, is we're going to preach through this. It gives a really good illustration of what we've been talking about. It's a great flow from the passage we just came from. And it's a great picture of how Jesus usually responds to people. You see it over and over again in scripture of people who are caught in sin. So here we go. John seven fifty three, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So this was very common for Jesus. He would stay outside the city at night, and then come back into Jerusalem during the day, and he would teach. Okay, sometimes he went to the Mount of Olives. Sometimes he went as far as Bethany and stayed the night. But he would come in and he would teach. All right, in the outer courts of the temple, we don't have that picture, but the one we had earlier where the temple was up top, they had outer courts of the temple. And the scribes would gather and the Pharisees would gather and it was a good place to kind of teach. So the rabbis would come in and teach. And at some point during his teaching for the day, this story unfolds. So John 8, 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that, he might have, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So we've got two groups of people here. We have the scribes and we have the Pharisees. All right, the scribes were, you know, both of them were professional classes, like the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees. All right, and if you think about a culture that writing wasn't that common, the scribes were a big deal. You know, they could write, they could transcribe the law, they would even keep track of some of the ways to keep the law, you know, if you wanted to keep this part of the law, then if you did this, this, and this, that would help you keep that law. So they would, I mean, they would just scribe, they would keep track of everything, all right? And they're there with the Pharisees, and the thing about the Pharisees is their whole objective was to keep the law. So you have two groups of people who are insanely consumed and obsessed with rules and regulations, they're insanely obsessed with, you know, getting things right. And so they come up and they take this lady um, that Jesus is teaching. They push this lady in front of them and say, she was caught in adultery. And they say, tell us what to do with her. We demand to know what's done. And here's the sad part, I think, about the whole situation. Just stepping back for a second and looking at the situation. The scribes and the Pharisees, they really weren't concerned with whether God's law was broken. They wanted to see what Jesus would do. They didn't really care about the woman. They didn't care about the state of the woman. They didn't care about the state of her heart. They wanted to trap Jesus. There's probably a really good chance they set the whole thing up. We don't know that. But the man wasn't there. And a man was supposed to be stoned as well. And the man was nowhere to be found. And it takes two for adultery. So, you know, it's a sad situation. And they did it to trap Jesus. Okay, and here's the thing. On the one hand, if he looks at this lady and excuses what she's done... He's disregarding the law of Moses. And then on the other hand, if he looks at her and he joins in this Jewish mob and they pick up stones and they start stoning her, then his message of forgiveness and love and grace and mercy goes out the window. Okay, not only that, the the Jews couldn't 
kill someone without approval from the Romans. Which is why when Jesus goes on trial, they have to bring in Pontius Pilate because they can't do it on their own. So they bring in a Roman official to help them oversee the trial of Jesus. So their motive, it's a far call from grace, mercy, and kindness. Am I right? It's a far cry from that. So let me ask you a question for you personally. If you, if you find someone, brother and sister in Christ, caught in sin, what do you do? What's your response? Your personal response. You see somebody who's caught in sin. You distance yourself. You talk about them behind their back. You condemn them. I'm not saying sin's not important. But what's your response? Do you show love? Do you show grace? Do you do everything in your power to rescue them and bring them back to a relationship with Jesus and bring them back to the church and plug them back in and pour back into them? Unfortunately, in the church, a lot of times we act like Pharisees. Oh, don't worry about them no more. They're off caught in that or off caught in that. And it's just, it's unfortunate. And it's, I think we see a great picture of the grace and mercy of Jesus here in this story, all right? Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more, he bent down and wrote in the ground. Now, we have no idea what Jesus was writing in the ground. It doesn't tell us. But I can assure you, every eye from every person in the crowd is glued to the ground. I mean, they brought her to Jesus to say, what are you going to do? And he bends down to the ground. I'm not going to do it in these clothes. But he bends down to the ground, and he starts writing something in the ground. And all eyes are glued. And I can't even imagine what's going through her mind. Right? We don't know much about her. But here's the thing. When you're in a situation like that, not justifying the situation at all. But if you're in a situation like that, there is some kind of longing to be loved, to be known, to pursue some other way, to get your thirst quenched some other way. I'm not saying it's right. Just saying that's probably the basis of why she was doing what she's doing. So she does the unthinkable. She breaks the vows of her marriage. Okay, in the middle of this sinful earthly pleasure the Jewish officials bust in. They grab her. She's probably half clothed. Who knows what they did with the man? Just, uh, we don't know where he is. They drag her out the front door. They push her down the streets. No doubt everybody who's on the street sees what's happening. They can probably assume what's going on if she's half clothed. And they're pushing her down the streets. The high priest, the Jewish officials, whoever it is. The, the scribes, the Pharisees. She's terrified. She's humiliated. Probably watching her life flash before her eyes because she knows she could be stoned. Knowing she's breathing her last, they throw her in front of Jesus. And he says something very interesting. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And he probably looks at the crowd. Let you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And I have no doubt that they waited a really long time with those stones in their hands, probably angry at times. And eventually threw down the stones and walked away. It says, but when they heard it, verse 9, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And I love that it says with the, the older ones went away first. We don't know why. I, if I had to guess, I'd say maybe some, I wonder if some older wisdom didn't prevail. I wonder if in that moment there was even an inkling of a recognition of grace 
and mercy. I wonder if they realized that they just disposed of this person. They could have cared less about this lady. They disposed of this lady for the sake of the sin. And I wonder if maybe just just an inkling, a shred of recognition, they had tossed this lady aside. In verse 10, they basically all left. Or verse 9, and so Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she's probably still looking at the ground, broken, ashamed, still not knowing what Jesus is going to do. He hasn't said what he's going to do. He just, everybody else has left and it's her and him. He says, has no one condemned you? In verse 11, she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. From now on, sin no more. And what's mind-blowing to me when I read this story is it's the order of what he says. It's the order of the way he says it. It says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a little backwards. If I was the one in charge, I'd put it the other way. If you go and you sin no more, I won't condemn you. That's the way I would do it. That's the way we want it done to us. If you go and you sin no more, then I won't condemn you. I won't condemn you based on how good you are. I won't condemn you based on your actions. If you can clean yourself up, then I won't condemn you. But that's not the gospel. That's not the way Jesus works. That's not the message of salvation. You see, religion, religion tells you to change. And if you change, then you'll be accepted by God. It's all based on what you do. If you change, then you'll be accepted. Jesus says, I know who you are, and I know what you've done. Look unto me, and you'll be accepted. Just look to me, and you'll be accepted. Eat of my bread, drink of my water, and let the rivers of my Holy Spirit change your life. Let the rivers of my Holy Spirit gush out of your life. You see the difference? Because see, Jesus knew that this woman would never have the ability to break free of her thirst for love until she understood his love. Alright, let me say that again. Jesus knew that she would never have the ability to break free of her thirst for love until she felt the loving embrace of God. And that's the way it works. Salvation is a gift. It's given to undeserving people like you, like me, and like this woman. We don't deserve it. And it's, and it's given to us. Jesus says, all who are thirsty, come to me. All who are thirsty, come to me. Jeremiah chapter 2, there's, this, there's these really cool verses. And it's talking about water and these wells. And this Old Testament, it says, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And not only that, but they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. He says, why would you trade me? I'm like the spring of living water that gushes out of the earth and you're trading me for this sinful insignificant, momentary pleasure. And I am the one who satisfies. You ever seen a spring? You ever seen, I mean, we've probably been around a lot of springs before, but just coming out, Courtney's parents live on a lake and it's a spring-fed lake. And so even on the clearest of days when the water is completely still, you can see in parts of the lake, you can see the water come up where it's 
gushing up, I mean, continually, just always going. And it's like God is looking at his people and saying, my love for you and the peace I offer you is like this spring that's continually coming out of the ground. It's never stopping. And and Jeremiah says, what we say is we say, I have a better idea. I'm going to go over here. I know you've got a a spring over there for me. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to dig my own spring. I'm going to dig my own well because I think I know what's best. I want to look for my own joy, my own peace, my own satisfaction. I want to look for it somewhere else. And so we go over here and we dig our own, our own hole and we dig our own wells. And they're not even wells, it says. It's like a hole you dug in the ground. You're trying to fill it with water and you're trying to replace the supply that I've given you. And it's broken. It doesn't even hold water. And this is what he says. He says, be appalled. The verse says, be appalled at this, you heavens. The, the picture is like, he's, you know, the angels look at God and the angels are looking down and saying, what are they doing? Why are they pursuing these things? Why are they pursuing things other than you? In Jeremiah 3.19 he says, I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you Israel have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. He's like, I thought if I gave you all these blessings, you would pursue me. You'd let me be your father. But instead, you're like this woman in John 8 who's unfaithful to her husband. You could have the keys to the kingdom and you walked away. So what do we do? We don't end this on a, on a bad note. This is a, this is a, it's an amazing passage of scripture and it's an amazing picture of looking to Jesus for everything you've been searching for in your life. Everybody in here thirsts for something. Everybody in this room. No questions. Everybody in this room is thirsting for something. You're pursuing something. And my encouragement, my challenge to you today is pursue Christ. Pursue his food. He's the bread of life. Pursue his water. He is the water that gushes out. The Holy Spirit comes into your life. All right? If you've never, you know, kind of breaking into two camps. If you've never placed your faith in Christ... You've never said, I want that. I want that life. I want that pursuit of Christ. I would encourage you to do that today. Give your life to him. There's a verse in Romans 10, 10, 9, and 10. It's one of my favorite verses. It's almost like that, that verse in John 7 where it just says, come to me if you're, you know, if, if you're thirsty and drink. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And for those of you here today who you say, I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian. Use today as an opportunity to refocus your gaze on him, to feed on his bread, to drink from his well. Use today as an opportunity to do that. Mark Driscoll said, Sin is the result of a worship disorder. You worship your way into sin because you're consumed in worshiping something else. So you worship your way into sin and you have to worship your way out. That's how you get out. You worship your way out. You need to displace sinful affections with deeper, greater affections. Treasuring Christ, being satisfied in Christ, enjoying Christ, and receiving both pain and pleasure from Christ as good gifts. Come to him. 
drink until your soul overflows. C.S. Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for John 7. Thank you for John 8. And just these stories that tell us so much about who you are, what it means to have a relationship with you. Tells us so much about our soul and our thirst for things, Lord, and our thirst should be for you. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here today who just doesn't quite grasp that or doesn't understand that and wants to, that they would grab me or grab somebody else in this room and just say, I want to know how to do that. I want to follow Christ. If people in this room, Lord, who are following you, Lord, that we would use today as just an encouragement, as a challenge to refocus our gaze and attention on you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your name, amen.